Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. At episode 99, so many things pop into one's head. Pop into my little head when I think about 99. You know, there's 99 as in Maxwell Smart and Agent 99. Sorry about that, Chief. Probably aging myself there. There's 99, the song by Toto. Probably aging myself there too. There's 99 Love Ballons or Red Balloons, the um, day after movie from the 1980s. The, the Nina, she sang that. And then, of course, there's the old joke about um, what goes 99 plonk? Answer, a centipede with a wooden leg. <clears throat> yeah, stupid kid's joke. On the podcast today, we are going to be talking about guide dog ownership. We've got some listener comments on this. I'm going to be speaking with Janine Stanley, who has a long history with being a guide dog handler and involved in the guide dog movement, and also to Bonnie Mosen, who has also had several guide dogs over the years and used to work in PR for the Seeing Eye. So we'll be talking about this guide dog ownership issue, and if you are motivated to comment on this issue after you've heard what everybody has to say, remember that we welcome that. You can send me an email to theblindside at mosen.org. That's theblindside at M-O-S-E-N.org. That email could be written down. It could be an audio attachment that you've recorded on your smartphone or your PC with your voice contributing to the podcast. You can also contribute with your voice by the good old-fashioned telephone. And that number is 719-270-5114 in the United States. 719-270-5114. Let's get into it. And here's some listener comments first. Hi, Jonathan. This is Flor Lynch here. I have long entertained the idea that the guide dog user should also own his or her dog. However, thinking about it in the past few days, I have questions about what model of ownership ought to be used. When should the dog become the property of its user? Should I, as owner then have sole ownership, co-ownership or joint ownership of the guide dogs associations school, with the guide dog association school, sorry. In Ireland, where I'm from, the guide dogs association owns the dog as long as it is a working dog. It refers to its guide dog, guide dog users as guide dog owners. PDOs, which I think is misleading. Anyway, I know of a few people who, because of the ownership issues, have gone and trained their own guide dogs. There's also the issue in many countries that the dog organization is a charity and the dogs and the training of them is funded by charitable donations and sponsorships and is very expensive withal. Also, a dog and its handler might not work out as a partnership, in which case the association can, in the early stages, retrain the dog to work with another blind user. I know of some instances of this which have had successful outcomes for everybody involved. However, I also know of a few instances where a dog has been withdrawn by the association from its owner. In one case, at least, or should I say, withdrawn by the association from its user. In one case, at least, because of lack of work for the guide dog. 
Here's Louise Retzel. Hi, Louise, again. And she says in the UK, we pay a small sum of money upon qualifying with a guide dog to transfer ownership into our name. However, we also sign a contract which allows guide dogs to take away the dog in exceptional circumstances if we do not follow agreed advice or mistreat the dog. I personally feel this is a good strategy, as unfortunately, there are some people who should not have guide dogs. At the end of the day, Guide Dogs is a charity, and it costs a lot of money to train a guide dog. If a dog is being mistreated or its training is not being maintained, I feel guide dogs, as a last resort, should reserve the right to take the dog back. A young dog can then be found a new owner. This happened with my guide dog, as after a few days of training with a person, guide dogs removed him as they were not treating him well and were causing him significant distress. If this had been allowed to go on for a long time, it could have meant my dog was withdrawn and all that money and training would have been wasted. Whilst I agree organisations like the RSPCA have a role here, in practice they tend to take a very long time before intervening. Yes, Jonathan, this is Petra. I've spoken to you before and you've been a big help. I love both of your your Daily Fiber and your uh, Blindside podcast. Um, I'm commenting about the, the ownership of guide dogs. I have uh, had many guide dogs starting when I was 16 years old. Um, I think I'm on my 12th now. Uh, obviously, I've never owned any of them. It's never been a problem for me. Um, I think that guide dog schools and trainers might be better judges as to whether a dog is being abused or not. There are times when I might be correcting my dog. I might be having her do guide dog push-ups, and someone in the general public thinks that that's being cruel, and they report me to the Humane Society, and the Humane Society doesn't know any better than the general public. Um, and they, you know, the guide dog school has more of a connection with me and my experience with the dog, and they also can require me to prove to them that I'm taking proper medical care of her. And uh, to me, it's never bothered me one way or the other that I didn't quote-unquote own the dog. Um, so that's my comment. I I um, I thought that at, at seeing eye that you did own the dog. I'm not sure about that. Um, but in the meantime, if you're uh, not going to be abusing the dog and mistreating it, it shouldn't be a problem whether you own it or not. Hello, Mr. Mosin. My name is Bill Morgan. I'm blind from RP. I'm now 71 years old. <clears throat> I'm calling about uh, a couple of issues. One is uh, the immediate one of the guide dogs. Uh, I've had two dogs or three dogs from schools, and I agree with you. I think ownership should take place. Um, the dog I have currently is a ex-cow and sheep dog that my son was given to use on a ranch in Montana, in fact, there was only two ranches away from the Wild Bill Cody Ranch uh, family's ranch, which is still a working ranch today. I just thought I'd tell you that. Anyway, my dog is uh, Australian Shepherd and, and Border Collie. I use Shep uh, as much as I can for recreational walking only now. I have to use a support cane as well uh, with him. 
and he does fine. Um, My son was given him by the ranch owner when he quit ranching, and my son had no place for him. So we decided to try him, and he was such a lovely dog, we kept him. And I was very ill. I almost died from a heart problem. And seven months after I got back home, one day I was sitting here, and I hadn't had a dog for years. Um, I said uh, to myself, well, if that dog can run sheep and cows, that dog can learn to guide. And I felt well enough to get up and start trying to work with him. And uh, he took to it just like a duck to water. Uh, I'd also uh, like to talk to you. I hope this isn't inappropriate. And you may be very interested in this. In 1983, I set a world record of being the only blind person to walk across America. You can double check that. I met President Reagan in the Oval Office uh, with my wife, Linda, <clears throat> and they, uh, it, uh, I, I walked 3,615 miles, 318 days, uh, following the Lewis and Clark uh, Trail for the majority of my walk from the mouth of the Columbia River in Astoria, Oregon, and I ended up at the Chesapeake Bay uh, in Baltimore, Maryland. I took my kids out of school for a year. I had three of them. And my wife drove. We had a 20-foot motorhome that was donated. And we lived in that thing for uh, a year, over a year, actually. This IRA thing you're talking about, I really get confused about it. But I'd like to find out where I could call to find out more about it. And I want you to know how much I appreciate what you're doing. I stumbled across you accidentally. Well, I've heard you on Freedom Scientific's uh, deals, uh, you know, what I'm trying to say, that website thing where you're on there once a month for years now. Uh, But on your podcast and stuff, I I had no idea it existed, and I got a Victor stream and was doing the podcast thing and stumbled across it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to leave that message. It was great to get it. I'm so pleased that you found us on the Victor Reader stream, and that partnership that you have with Mr. Shep sounds very special. And what a great story about setting that record back in the 1980s. Ira Just to briefly answer the question, you can go back and listen to some past episodes on your stream where we've covered Ira in great depth. But Ira is what they call a visual interpreter service, and you use it with a smartphone if you have an iPhone or an Android phone, and often you use it with a pair of glasses. Or their new Horizon system means that you can get a dedicated device. So even if you've not used a smartphone before, they can give you a device with the glasses that you plug into that device. This is called Ira's Horizon device. And you can then talk to sighted assistants whenever you need it. When you wear the glasses and you press the button to contact an agent who's been professionally trained, they will be able to see what you could see if you were able to. And they will describe the environment. They'll help you to navigate. They can 
read things for you. Basically, any access to information that could benefit from a working pair of eyes, they can provide to you using this device. If you or a family member have access to the web, their website, which explains all of this in great detail, is ira, that's spelled A-I-R-A, dot I-O. That's ira dot I-O. Now, if you don't have access to the web or you'd like to call someone and talk about it, their phone number is 1-800-835-1934. That's 1-800-835-1934. I'm sure you'd love it. It's certainly a service that has changed my life immensely and the lives of many people who use it. Our place, our issues, The Blind Side with Jonathan Mosen. When the Sky Dog ownership issue came up, I immediately thought of talking to Janine Stanley, who I know was a long-time guide dog handler. We go all the way back to the ACB radio days. What was that? Was it Poor? What was the name of that of the show that you did? Uh, Canine Connections. Canine Connections. That's right. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I know you have a long history with the guide dog movement, and you're a passionate guide dog handler. I was really interested to get your take on this question of. Ownership, And I guess where I want to start with this is the comment from our listener, Louise, who made the point that in the UK, yes, you can own your dog, but the guide dog organization there reserves the right to withdraw the dog in those circumstances where they may perceive there to be some sort of abuse problem or something like that. It seems to me, how can someone else take your property from you unless they are the authorities? You know what I'm saying? That doesn't sound like ownership to me. And it's not technically. Ownership is just that. You own the dog and the only way, and this is for the United States, the only way the dog can be removed from you is by going through third-party authorities, which is usually your city or county or some sort of local government that has abuse standards for pet dogs. And so the things that... And, and this is an argument that's often used to justify um, conditional ownership, as it's called here, uh, or custody, as my organization calls it. Um, the one thing that they use to justify it is, well, a working dog is not the same. And that's true to a point. However, if you are going to give someone full ownership of something, you have to trust that person and trust that you've educated them enough to be able to care for that animal properly. What would you say to those who say, these are really expensive animals to train, and that if somebody just doesn't cut the mustard as a guide dog handler, and the guide dog's work is deteriorating. It may be that there comes a point where the dog just can't function as a guide dog anymore because of the environment that they're in. And even not taking into account the fact that these are living creatures with feelings who need to be looked after, it's also a huge waste of a scarce resource to leave that dog in that environment. Mm-hmm. It is, but... That's the cost of doing business. That's what you get into when you get into providing these services. And I personally am a big fan, and it's not something that the organization that I work for does currently, but it's something we have done in the past. And it's something I believe the Seeing Eye is the only school in the U.S. that does right now, is some sort of a minimum token, if you will, payment for the dog so that you've got some sweat equity in there. And people say, well, that means nothing. The person can pay that and still abuse the dog. Well, they certainly can. 
but the organization doesn't have to accept them back for another one. And that, to me, is the answer to the, well, this person just wasted X amount of money. Um, Fifty to $60,000 is the figure we cite. I think it's a lot higher because that figure hasn't been changed since the 90s. And we know, given the future value of money, that that's got to be a lot higher at this point. And the organizations that provide these dogs, if someone was not able to care for their dog or they did not do what was recommended to keep the team working safely, et cetera, et cetera, that organization isn't obligated to give them another dog. And I think that's something that people need to remember as well. You know, um, these dogs are not necessarily something that we're owed. They are something that we have to meet certain standards to receive, and we have to keep those standards up. Is there a danger that if someone sees you correcting your dog in the street and they complain to these authorities, you know, standard local authorities who administer issues surrounding cruelty to animals, you may actually be penalised in some way for giving your dog a perfectly legitimate correction, whereas if the guide dog school was the right of redress, the guide dog school would better understand that sometimes working dogs do need a correction. Mm -hmm. That goes both ways. Um, I Believe me, I've been involved in those phone calls um, as part of my job. And one of the things that happens on one hand is, oh, sorry about that, three one of the things that happens on one hand is that the authorities see the harness, they hear service animal, and they throw up their hands and they say, there's nothing we can do. Nothing. We're not even touching it. And even if legitimate abuse is going on, physical harm, neglect, etc., they don't want to touch it because it's a service animal. On the other hand, the scenario you mentioned can happen where you have an overly zealous animal control officer who doesn't believe in chain collars, let's say, and sees you give a correction to your dog and now you're going to get harassed. That's not happening as much as it did back in the 90s. Luckily, it still does happen, though. Um, right now, the bigger problem in dealing with local animal control people is getting them to take the loose dog problem more seriously. But certainly, you know, um, the abuse thing can actually happen. What tends to happen now more often and, and happily so is that we'll get a call, say, from a humane officer from a jurisdiction who says, well, I think this might be your dog. And we say, well, go talk to the person, of course, and find out where the dog was trained. And if they can't do that, they send us a photo. Um, and I don't know why people don't just talk to people, talk to the actual person involved. But they will send us a photo. We will send that out to our colleagues and say, do you know this team? And then the school will call the team and say, hey, we got a complaint. Can you explain it from your point of view? And honestly, Jonathan, nine times out of ten, it is just that. It's a very legitimate authorized correction. One of the things the schools are doing here in the U.S. to help decrease this is they're changing their training methods a lot. Uh, now, given the way our dogs work and the tenacity that our dogs need to have to push their way through a you know Manhattan crowd or a shopping mall or whatever uh, to figure out some complicated thing, they're going to have a lot of initiative and they may need a leash correction. They may need a more 
harsh form of reminder. But generally, the schools are trying now to uh, change the training techniques to be more positive, to be less physical. And we use something called a timeout, which is drawing the dog close to your body, not interacting with it at all, and making it stay there for 10 seconds, which is a really powerful thing. However, I've talked to people who misinterpreted that. They pulled the dog up to them and off their feet, and it was horrible. And I had to explain, no, that's actually a legitimate way to do it. I'm sure the dog wasn't off its feet just happened to be what you saw in the moment, you know. Um, so it's a it's a fine line that we walk. Yes, it is. Then there's the question of the cost, the upkeep, the vet care, those expenses that sometimes come along when you have a guide dog. And some people who object to ownership say, look, if the school owns the dog, the vet cares the school responsibility. If I own the dog, it's mine. And I just can't afford the maintenance of a dog with things that may go wrong with the dog's medical condition, all those things. Mm -hmm. Um, That's another thing going in. There are times maybe in someone's life when having a guide dog is not physically, financially, physically with an F possible. And there's always that sort of uncomfortable discussion that we have about, okay, you want to own the dog. Well, then guess what? You take on all the responsibility of ownership. Well, that's not something that we want to say. We obviously want the dog to receive care as as the schools. We, as the handlers of the dog, would like a say in that care. So you're kind of torn if you're a dog handler between um, do you want the school to pay for everything, in which case, guess what? They get the say in what care your dog gets because they're footing the bill. You know, of course, you can have some say and you can talk with them. And and again, nine times out of 10, that's exactly what happens. You have a wonderful relationship with your school vet. You can iron out everything. Occasionally, there are times when you want something else done, uh, either more or less or a different vet or whatever, some other circumstance. And the school says, wait a minute, we're paying for it. That's not going to happen. And you have to understand that they do have that right if, in fact, they are shelling out that money. If you want more of a say, put some more into it if you can. It's a hard, hard kind of area to navigate if you're on any side of it. You know, it's very difficult because the schools don't want their investments to go without health care. People are scared to call the school and discuss with them, hey, I'm having some financial problems. Can I have a little bit of help right now? Uh, And will that be held against me when I get my next dog? And again, nine times out of 10, it will not. So is user choice the best option? Are there some schools that are offering ownership and the ability for the school to retain ownership if that's what the handler wishes? Yes, there are some schools that offer unconditional ownership, and they also offer, and and the school that I work for is one of them, uh, they also offer a plan called custody or conditional ownership. And one of the reasons that some people would opt for the conditional ownership, because most of the schools, the care is exactly the same. In fact, I don't know of any school where the care Uh, level of follow-up with a trainer, level of medical, whatever, is different whether you own your dog or not. So all of those services are the same. 
one reason that some people opt for custody is they want the dog to come back to the school in case they pass away or something happens to them and their family gets involved. They want to know that the dog is coming back to the school where it can be cared for appropriately and not become some sort of a family argument kind of thing. Who's going to take the dog and where will it go? They want to make sure of that. Now, They can do that if they own the dog, too. They can simply put it in their will. They can send us letters about it, et cetera, et cetera. But with the custody, it's a done deal. And the family can't really argue because this is the contract the person signed with the school. So that's usually the biggest reason that people would say want custody, because they want to be able to have a safe landing place for the dog in case something happens. There was a resolution that was put before the NFB I think it was a couple of years ago on this question of ownership. And the resolution essentially said that every guide dog school should offer the option for blind people to be able to own their dog. And that resolution was defeated after some debate. I just do not understand why any blind person would be against the ownership of guide dogs and why they would therefore be for what is really a very paternalistic practice that would basically suggest that a guide dog school should have the right to pull a guide dog from their handler because that turns the guide dog school into a form of police, doesn't it? Sure, absolutely. And that just breeds more of this often irrational fear that keeps people from reaching out to their guide dog schools for help. And then sometimes there's no option but to retire the dog. And if the person owns the dog, that's fine. you know. But if the person doesn't own the dog, then retirement means whatever options are available under custody or conditional ownership. And I I'm not sure if this is the case in California with the sunsetting of their guide dog board, but for a long time, you really couldn't, literally couldn't own your dog if you had it from one of the California schools. So um, hopefully that has changed, but it is a matter of trust. And unfortunately, like many social service agencies, the agency folks involved see the bad. You know, they forget that we have 800 wonderful grads who do great things with their dogs and are very responsible, but we have 10, you know, that are doing all these outrageous things and bad things happen and we have all these things to deal with. And it's very easy to become custodial in that environment. And sometimes you have to have a hard reality check not to. And that's why I think it's very important to involve a range of your customers. If you're doing this kind of thing and you're making these kind of policies, make sure your consumers are involved and have a say. Um, We recently uh, took out a training technique that a lot of our instructors were uncomfortable with, but a lot of our graduates used. And the graduates rose up and said, no, bring that back. And so they looked at it and talked to everybody involved, figured out a way to bring back the technique safely. And now we teach leash guiding again, uh, where we had not for a couple of years. And that to me was a good example of trusting your people and not saying, uh, all right, you guys don't realize how unsafe this is. And realizing that, oh, wait a minute, you do it every day? Oh, I guess it is safe. You're not dead yet. So... (laughs) But the ownership thing, it's very difficult because honestly, this is going to be really controversial, but a lot of people have been brainwashed to think that 
oh gosh, you know, a lot of people abuse their dogs. No, a lot of people don't. If you really look at the figures, you know, there aren't that many. There are a few cases where somebody gets a dog and they're really not ready for it or bad things happen in their lives or bad things happen medically to them and the dog needs to be removed. But that's got to be a negotiated kind of thing. And usually with most of the schools, it is. But we only hear about and experience the bad things via social media and and otherwise. So that's what we think the world is like. Right. And animal abuse of any kind is hideous, and no one's condoning that by any means. But I suppose what makes me curious about advocates of guide dog school ownership of these animals is why should a blindness organization be entitled to have this authority policing role when every other case of animal abuse is handled in a particular way? It's not handled by the pet shop that you bought the dog from or the razor of the puppy litter that you got the puppy from if it was given to you. It's handled by a consistent process that applies to all of us. Certainly. And here's something you may find really, really frightening. Many of the schools that are established to train service dogs for people who aren't blind. So outside of the blindness realm, the schools that are um, accredited by Assistance Dogs International, for example, and many of the other smaller schools, they retain ownership of the dog. There is no path to ownership in those programs. And for example, with the ADI accredited schools, their graduates have to pass a public access test. And the test is given at one year after the team graduates, and then every two years until the dog is past seven. So you could possibly take that test twice more, depending on the age of your dog when it's issued. Also, if your dog is consistently overweight and you're not doing anything to help that problem, then you could face having your dog's access revoked which means you will not be allowed to use the ADI logos and anything in your ID. You won't be able to take your dog, you know, out technically. Now, (laughs) the way our laws work here, that doesn't quite work as planned, but the school can also, depending on their contract, take the dog back. And so blind people actually, in some ways, have it a lot better in terms of the ownership and things like that than other people with other disabilities who have other kinds of service dogs. And this is why, Jonathan, you're seeing an increase in owner training in the U.S., not only in the guide dog world, but particularly in the service dog world, because number one, there aren't enough schools. And number two, they don't want the wait time. And number three, they want People want to own their dogs and be in charge of what goes on with them. For another perspective on the guide dog ownership issue, I thought I would go right close to home here, literally at home actually, and bring Bonnie Mosen into the studio because Bonnie is a seasoned guide dog handler and she's also had uh, association with the seeing eye in a professional capacity. So welcome, Bonnie. Thank you. Great to be here. Nice to have you back on the blind side. Thank now, for you. people who don't listen to the Mosin Explosion, and it's absolutely shocking to think that people don't listen to the Mosin Explosion on Mushroom FM, but there are one or two. Um, what have you been up to lately? Because you've been doing some interesting things. Yeah, I am currently training journal trained journalist, and so I've been doing. Um, we are in our audio production phase, so I'm learning how to produce stories for the ear for radio, um, potentially podcasts, but. Uh, we're in the audio production right now. So you were um, 
took time out of your busy schedule to train me in uh, sound recorder, studio recorder. Sorry. Well, if studio I can't do it recorder. for you, who can I do it yeah. for, really? We probably will have I'm to learn be, Reaper at some point. There'll be something seriously wrong. Yeah, we will be doing pack- packaging at some point. So it's going well and, and really enjoying my, my time in, in journalism school. You ever got you an audio interface? And uh, again, Ira was just so useful for that because yeah, um, normally with the audio interface thing, if I get something new, I kind of plug things into random sockets and play with random knobs and work out what they do. And luckily, thanks to Ira, when we got this audio interface, I was able to have them show me around it. And then while they were showing me around it, they wrote down a cheat sheet, which we now have. They sent it to me as a as an email message. So we have all the... Um, all the, the buttons and their order and everything memorized. But it's also caused us to do some rethinking down here because Bonnie's coming down to the studio to do work of her own. And what I've been doing for many years now, a long time, um, probably about 10 years, is uh, I have had a laptop that's always had a kind of a dock so that I can turn my laptop into a desktop. And that's been a very useful thing because it means that I have all my material with me everywhere I go. But these days, of course, we have cloud storage and everything I do is synced to some cloud service or other anyway. So that's not as applicable now. And we've got fiber here. We've got gigabit fiber. So we're going to have a dedicated desktop PC custom built for the studio. And my wonder son-in-law, Henry, and I spent the weekend working on this and getting exactly the correct components that we want in terms of RAM and hard drive space, got to get the solid state storage and everything. So it's going to be our dream machine. And it means that it will be permanently set up so that when either Bonnie or I want to work in the studio, we'll just use the same machine without having to worry about docking. Just different software. Yeah. So it's going to be really super. Yeah. And so maybe it'll mean that if I have a really hectic week, you can do a few blindside episodes. Maybe. can try. That'd be nice. I have some ideas for the February one. The The February blindside? Oh, well, we do, we do four in February normally, so yeah. Well, because it's Black History Month, and I thought it might be interesting to feature um, a, a blind people of color or professionals that were. A super idea. Yeah, Absolutely super idea. Yes, yeah, so that's good. So we're, 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 I'm glad that you're getting into the stuff, and we'll get you on the Reaper next. Yeah, because yeah. So I'll start collecting. So uh, I'll start collecting. Uh, Victims, as I like to call them, for these things, or, or people that are people that are willing to be interviewed. I can think of a couple subjects. Subjects, be? subjects yeah, is a much yeah, better. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the guide dog ownership issue because this is something that I really stumbled upon in last week's episode yeah. when I read that story about the, the elderly man in the UK. And I do wonder whether there might be other things going on in yeah. that particular case that we are not privy to. But I think the the point of ownership is still something that really does push my buttons, I'm afraid. Now, some of the things that have come in in reaction to this from listeners have included things like, well, when you're in the United States, at least, the government, the Library of Congress, sends you a talking book machine, and you don't own that, and they can take that back. So so there are blindness services and things that we have Mm -hmm. that we don't necessarily own the product that we're using. So is Guide Dogs really that much of an exception in the case of those schools that don't allow you to own the dog? And why should you be allowed to own the dog in your view? That's an interesting and probably something that's that's been around the discussion's been around for decades. When I first got my first dog when I was nineteen, and I've I've gotten all of my dogs from the seeing eye. And I chose the seeing eye because 
I, I actually did not choose the CNI because of their ownership policy. A lot of people do choose a specific school because of a specific policy, whether it be in relation to meaning a puppy raiser, whether it be in relationship to ownership. But I chose the CNI because I was familiar with it. I had seen some presentations and I had met someone that had a CNI dog. And I knew that it was the oldest school in the country. And at that time, I didn't really know how many schools there were in the country. But um, it, ownership just didn't even cross my mind. Um, now, interestingly, and the reputation of the scene, now, interestingly, at, and I'll get to this in a bit, interestingly, at the same time, a friend of mine had chosen a different school that did not have an ownership policy. Um when the seeing eye, when you say they didn't have an ownership policy, you're saying they they kept ownership of they the dog. They kept ownership of the dog, right. yes, okay. with follow up every year. Um, if you're not familiar with the history of the seeing eye, I would strongly recommend reading a book by Peter Putnam called Love in the Lead, and um, it tells the history of the school. But it's not only a history of the seeing eye; it's a history of the entire blindness movement in the United States, and. It's fascinating because when the seeing eye started, a lot of the blind professionals were completely against it because this was giving independence to blind people. There were no rehab centers as such then for training, for rehabilitation, teaching. So when a lot of the students would come to the seeing eye to get their dog, staff would be teaching the women how to put on makeup, how to match their clothes. And that was one reason for many, many years that seeing eye had that reputation of formality, of dressing for, for meals and calling people by Mr. and Mrs. because it was a dignity thing. And that's one reason the people had the ownership of the dogs, because this was something that wasn't given to them, because so many things are given to blind people. When you own something, parents out there who have children, when you get the car for them, or when they have to buy the car, when they have to pay for the cell service, or insert whatever it is, when you own something, when you have to use your own money to purchase it or to upkeep it, you take a lot better care of it. Not to say that people that don't go to a school that does not give ownership, that's certainly not what I'm saying, but that was sort of the philosophy back then it, because it was not something that was charitable because there were so many charities out there for the blind. And for me, um, going back to what I had started telling uh, earlier about a friend of mine who had gotten her dog from a school that did not have ownership policy, her dog was taken away um, about two years after that because for no real reason that they gave, they said the dog wasn't working out. A trainer came down to visit, to do a follow-up visit, so the dog didn't have initiative anymore. She was lucky she had brought her cane with her to school that day. Because they took the dog immediately and gave her no real reason why they were taking the dog. There was no abuse involved. Um, and, you know, she had no recourse at that point. And that can happen with schools that have an ownership policy. They, they say they, they cannot actually take physically take the dog from you. Now, if the ASPCA or Royal SPCA gets involved then there's not a lot they can do. They can give support as much as they can, but it's turned over to animal control. And that's as it should be, right? And that's because, as it should be. Yes, yeah, yeah, because that's, 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 those are the people. Now, what, what do you say, though, to those people who say, 
Sometimes organizations like the Humane Society or the ASPCA or whatever it's called in your particular part of the world can get it wrong too. So oh, yeah. that if you have a situation where a member of the public complains about a guide dog handler giving a dog a correction when they're being worked and that member of the public contacts one of those authorities and says, well, I just saw this blind mm -hmm. person being really mean to their dog and you need to go and take that dog off them. Um, maybe they are not as informed about guide dog issues as, say, a school that could yes. reserve the right to exactly. do that. Exactly, exactly. And what happens or what you hope would happen in that case if the school is very supportive of that graduate. There was a horrible case back in I, the early 2000s, and I'm sure everyone, Craig Miller, if I say the name, every guide dog handler out there is going to shriek. This was someone from, um, I'm just going to say the school's name because it's in the public knowledge. You can Google it and it'll come up. He was from Leader Dog. It happened in Pennsylvania. I was working at the Seeing Eye at the time. He killed his dog. He, beat, he was drunk and beat the dog to death. Um, this had been someone that supposedly had been complained about before. Of course, when it was in the newspaper, they automatically put seeing eye dog. So you can imagine the phone calls we were getting that morning. It was it was horrible. And because the dog, it's his name was Inky. So puppy raisers who had had an Inky were very upset. It was, it was awful. And yeah, because seeing eye dogs seem to be like a generic exactly. term. Even exactly. here, people talk about oh, seeing yeah. eye dogs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Even it's a seeing eye dog. Yeah. But yeah, so that was a situation where there had been a complaint. I don't know. I don't know the whole story about whether the school investigated, whether the Humane Society. But again, you know, it's so kind of. Who like, owned the dog in that instance? Who owned the dog? I think the school did. Yeah. I think the school did. So right. I, I may be wrong. And if someone, you know, someone feel free to, feel free to correct me. Um, but I think the school did have ownership. I, I, some schools have, after a year, you can have ownership. When you leave the seeing eye with your dog, uh, you have ownership of the dog. Now, that means, and that brings up a whole other um, issue here, which is what comes into the ownership policy. I'm responsible for Lizzie. I'm responsible for buying her food. I'm responsible for her medical care. And as we all know, vet care can get expensive. Uh, her surgery was $800 um, when she had the, the mast cell tumor removed from her a few weeks ago. I'm responsible for her general vet visits, for paying for her baths, for um, heartworm. And, well, we don't have heartworm here, but flea and tick and flea and tick um, prevention. So I'm responsible. The school does not give me a stipend. And some of the schools do give a medical stipend. Um, and that is helpful for some people because it can get expensive. Because having a guide dog is not a right. It's a privilege. There's nothing to stop the guide dog school itself from reporting somebody whose dog they have trained to the authorities either, right? I mean, presumably if a seeing eye trainer on some sort of routine follow-up visit felt that there was cruelty going on, while there's absolutely no ambig ambiguity in the case of the seeing eye that that dog belongs to you, if they felt that the dog was in some sort of danger, then they themselves could file some sort of complaint with the relevant authorities, right? I would assume so. I can't actually speak to that because I, I don't know. Um I know one thing that I will say about the seeing eye and I hope with other schools is a lot of times, thankfully, 
when um, someone has a, a member of the public, because a lot of times they would call uh, the seeing eye and report someone that was mean to the guide dog, but we would have to know the name of the person to know if it was one of our grads, because there's 12 guide dog schools in the country. It may have been one from another school. And a trainer would usually call that person and just say, you know, we had a complaint, what happened, and talk to them. They would they would give the graduate a benefit of the doubt and give them support. Now, if it went further than that, like I said, I I'm not in the I was not in the training department. I can only say what I know from a frontline working in PR and in the reception, what went on and what I've been told by other graduates. So as it escalated, I, I honestly don't know what would go on. That would be something that you would need to talk to to Jim Kutch about how they handle that. But I will say that from what I saw of the seeing eye, they're very supportive of their handlers in situations where, and like you said, they could have reported people. I don't know. But I know just from talking, from hearing other grads talk that some schools are not that supportive. Whether they give ownership or not, they, like the school, and I'm not going to mention the school's name here, but the school that my friend went to, she will never go back there. She has no respect for that school anymore. Has anything improved in terms of, you would think that if a school Mm -hmm. was going to revoke a dog, take someone's dog away, I mean, let's not get past that this is not just a question of taking somebody's primary choice of mobility away. There is a strong relationship oh, yeah, bond. Definitely. And this is what really moved me about the story of this elderly gentleman living by himself whose vision and hearing impaired in the, in the UK. Now, we, we don't know all the facts there, and there may be more to it than that. But the, the thing is, let's not, let's not over uh, underestimate the immense bond that exists. And anybody mm-hmm. who's ever had a relationship with a guide dog understands this. So... You would think that there would be, in every instance, some sort of fair right of appeal when a dog is withdrawn. Is that the case? I think so. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there is. A lot of times, like you said, there's there's other stuff going on, and you don't always know the entire story. Because I know of people who have been refused dogs from pretty much all the schools. And, and for a school to refuse to serve a client that they have served before, there's something there's something going on there. Right. There, there's there's they've done some kind of investigating, and they're not going to give the dog to them for whatever reason, um, whether it be because the person can't handle the dog, whether there's been some suspicious activity, that sort of thing. And that's that's pretty much across the board, I think, with all the schools. And that handles one of the objections that people have that well, if you don't have the schools owning the dog where's the redress where's the recourse and the recourse is that the school can refuse to provide you with a future dog if they think you are mistreating the dog not only could they i would think report uh, that to the appropriate authorities but they can also say look we just don't want to have any track with you anymore yeah and i think Um, that they will tell you that from what i've seen on some of these and some of this is coming from what i've seen on guide dog lists so i can't I'm not speaking officially for any school here. It's just what I've seen on social media. And they have said, you know, we don't feel comfortable giving a dog to you, whatever school this is, and we're not going to serve you. And they do communicate with each other. Schools will communicate with each other. So um, chances are they could contact another school. And if they have 
said they've had a dog from school A before, they might contact school A and say, you know, why are you not serving this person? So it seems an incredibly paternalistic thing for these guide dog schools to not relinquish ownership to the dog. Now, the, the one thing I haven't covered with you, though, is what happens in those situations? People say, well, if the relationship isn't working out, and in fact, really, this is a this is a very expensive mobility yeah. tool when all is said and done. <laughs> I remember my... Uh, one of my guide dog instructors, who you know well, mm-hmm. when I when I got my guide dog Pearl and I was making all sorts of affectionate noises about what an amazing thing this was, and the, the instructor said, it's only a work tool. If it dies, we'll get you another one, <laughs> which is a typically extreme thing for that instructor to have Oh, I'm sure a lot of guide dog <coughs> instructors have but, said that in, in jest. <laughs> but, but, in, but in reality, what happens there, if, if the dog isn't working out and the owner of the dog wants to keep the dog purely because of the bond. Mm-hmm. So so it's not – maybe their circumstances have changed. The dog is kind of getting restless, um, not getting enough work. Um, they're clearly not, not happy. But the, the human wants to keep the relationship going because of the bond, nothing to do with the mobility. And I guess the argument is if the school owns the dog, the school mm-hmm. can say, hang about, this dog is only four years old. It's got a good six years of working life. This dog cost $50,000 to train. We have a moral obligation to take it from you and give it to somebody who needs it more. And that's a tough one. And I know of people who have had dogs from schools that own that they have ownership of the dog. And the dog is still relatively young and can't work because of a working issue. But the school has deemed that the dog could possibly go out with someone else, maybe someone with a slower pace or um, more laid back lifestyle. And the person, because they own the dog, says, I'm not returning it, even though they have encouraged them to return it. They can't get the dog back. And you kind of you you understand the bond there but then you're getting another dog and you're just kind of taking this animal that's a 50 60,000 dollar animal that's been well trained that could possibly serve someone else and you're keeping it but yet getting another dog so you have kind of a very expensive glorified pet there so it's a kind of a selfish act of love it is a sel- oh. it, in some cases i mean sometimes if it's a medical problem or or dog aggression or something that the dog is definitely not going to go back out in, you know. But I have heard of cases where people have had dogs where they owned them and wouldn't give them back, even though they'd only had them three months. So isn't that a case against ownership, that that in fact uh, this is a huge waste of a very yeah. scarce resource? Yeah, and it's, it's a tough issue. I mean, it's a – and a lot of it I think you have to look at your relationship with the school, the school's relationship, how they handle things, and I can't – You know, there's 12 schools in the U.S., and I can't speak for all of them or any of them, really. But um, because some people have ownership, they wouldn't think of it any other way. And other people don't have ownership, and they like it that way. So I think it's just because one thing we don't have with the singer, we have follow-up. But the school pretty – well, I don't have follow-up from the seeing eye living in New Zealand, but I can call them on the phone and um, probably use video and that sort of thing. And I have follow-up through our school here, which I have mandatory follow-up every year. So it's like them having ownership of my dog because I do have mandatory follow-up. And the way I look at it is, you know, some people – puppy raising is another huge, 
huge issue in the guide dog's world. Some people really want that contact with puppy raisers. Some don't. It can be good. It can be bad. But you know when you go to a certain school, if they're going to have that contact, if they're going to have the graduation. And I think it's the same thing. I mean, you, you have to just do your research. And if ownership is that important to you, then you go to a school that either has outright ownership or will grant ownership within a year. But again, some people like the stipend. You know, they they may not be able to afford the vet care of a dog, or they might want that two hundred dollars a year, or whatever a school gives someone for for general vet care, or. If they have major surgery, then the school will will pay for it. So, and and it, it's it's, I guess it's just it it you can't have one school that fits all, because it's just it's not not possible. And, and, and that's one of the cool the good things about that you have um, a choice yeah. a, about a market. The U.S. Mm-hmm, size that is that yeah the market will take care of itself, and you can shop around and you can exactly. go to the school that suits your needs. Well, suits here in New Zealand, we don't we have don't that have choice. that opportunity. It's one school. It's a very, very, very small school. That's the great thing about the U.S. is that there is a choice. Yeah. If you want to specifically stay on the West Coast, you've got several schools out there. If you are East Coast, same thing. Um, and that's or if you want a certain breed, same thing. But and that's the the beauty of it. That and that that's to. that's see that's the the weird quandary that um, even if my lifestyle changed where it would be more advantageous for me to have a dog, and at the moment it isn't, the, the dog wouldn't get enough work. But if my work life changed and I was doing a lot more commuting, I love my commute right now down the stairs. <laughs> um, then. Um, in a way, I'm doing them a favor by saying I will never have a dog um, that I can't own because that's one less dog for them to provide, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so oh, oh, who cares then? Yeah, um, you'd have but, to go to the U.S. or else. So, so it's kind of, well, you're in a catch-22, and um, it would involve me having to, I guess, throw myself on the mercy of some other school somewhere in the world that does have ownership. Help me. Please help me get a dog. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a it's a difficult thing. Something I really would not budge on. Uh, it's something I feel it's, deeply and passionate about. And some people about. are very passionate about yeah, it, and yeah. that's that's fine. And some people are passionate the other way. And I think that's what I think again. That's what's great about having so many schools out there is that you can choose. Yeah, choice is a wonderful thing. And that is Bonnie Mosen wrapping up episode ninety nine of The Blind Side. We will be back next week for the big episode 100. But let me just remind you how you can be in touch if all this discussion has stimulated your feedback mechanisms. 719-270-5114 is the US phone number. You can leave us a message there. 719-270-5114. Or you can email with an audio attachment or just write something down in the email if you prefer. And the address for that is theblindside at mosen.org. The Blind Side is all joined together at mosen.org. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting, on the web at mosin.org.